All right, we are back for this week's episode of Bricks and Clicks, where we get to continue our conversation with Lisa Curtis, who is the founder and CEO of Cooley Cooley Foods. Our conversation got cut off due to some technical difficulties, but we're really excited that Lisa was able to come back and, and continue the conversation. For those of you who didn't listen to the episode or part one, I highly encourage you to go download it, listen to it, and then come back to this episode. Um, but Lisa, she... She worked in marketing. She's a communications director at Mosaic. And prior to that, she interned for President Barack Obama, which allowed her to make some connections um, in Africa. And in 2011, she founded Cooley Cooley. So Lisa, welcome back. And let's hear about maybe the 2014 part of the journey where we left off last week. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back and being patient with Chicago power outages. Um, so I... Like you said, I, I launched Cooley Cooley onto the market in 2014, but started kind of working on it, Peak Core in 2011. So 2014, that market launch, you know, started with us meeting a forager from Whole Foods yeah. um, at the, as we were doing samples in farmer's markets and then getting a meeting with the Whole Foods NorCal regional buyer, which went exceptionally well. She rolled us out. Well, she authorized us to all the stores. Yep. Um, which meant we had to still go store by store, sell it in. Um, and, you know, we worked really hard doing demos, doing everything we could to make sure that initial store test went well. Um, and we actually had a really cool opportunity, um, both kind of then, you know, we, we went to Expo West, we went to Fancy Food, we were able to tell the story of, look, we're selling all these bars, look how well we're doing. Um, and then we kind of slowly expanded to both NorCal and SoCal and then Pac Northwest. Um, wow. Every time we expanded, I went on a road trip with my mom. I was the only person full time on Gooly Gooly and my mom uh, was kind enough to take some time off work and we would go and like literally do demos, uh, more demos than you can believe um, over the span of a week and just try to hit as many stores, talk to as many team members, as many, you know, um, customers as we could and really kind of build up that philosophy. How many SKUs did you have when you were doing this testing? So three bars um, is what we started with. We got the opportunity in 2015. We were actually approached by the Clinton Foundation, who was working on this project to reforest Haiti. And they said, you know, we saw Moringa as being a really cool plant to help with reforestation. We'd really love to partner with you all. We want to grow a lot of Moringa in Haiti but we want a way for the farmers to sell the leaves and earn an income. And we said, yes, we're super interested, um, but let's figure out if we can make a new product kind of made with Haitian Moringa that tells that story a little bit. Um, so yeah. we actually went to Whole Foods Global, um, reached out to the buyer there, not thinking she would respond, um, and said, we have this really cool partnership with the Clinton Foundation. It has this great impact story. Um, you know, here is a tentative product we'd like to make. Would you be interested in launching it? Um, and I think after seeing what we had done with bars and some of the velocities we had and just like the amount of effort we were really pouring into to making the stores successful, she said yes. And so we ended up launching our bars and our powder skew, which we just started testing out. Um, we launched nationwide at the kind of beginning of 2016. And then from so there, so your assortment has expanded from from very understand, how did you go from the two, two and a few more um, powders to where you are today? Yeah, it's been a wild journey. I think 
Um, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have stayed a little bit closer with, you know, mm -hmm. one category, one co-packer, one type of product. Um, I think the trick with, or the, the tricky part about starting a company that's really focused on the ingredient is you can put it in so many things. It's like, oh, we can put it in bars, we can put it in shots, we can put it in powders, we can put it in everything. Um, and so I, I think we got a little bit, well, I, I'll take responsibility. I got a little bit of bright, shiny object um, kind of CEO syndrome and went after a lot of categories, um, resulting in at one point we had uh, we had products, we had six co-packers for Ooh, a you know sub five million dollar business so we've actually made some some pretty dramatic changes recently um where we discontinued our shots so if you love shots and want to try them there might be just a few left on our website but that's pretty much the end and we're also discontinuing our chocolate bar um which was is a particularly sad one because it's a product that is really beloved by a lot of us internally and we have a lot of e-commerce customers that love it um, but the cogs didn't work and I think we hadn't really realized that we were going to be in the candy category I think we had tried to position it more as a functional snack um, so that was another big lesson um, so we're now really really focused on the supplement aisle um, and how we can continue to build out our, our brand block there yeah well really good on you for taking the taking the initiative to make that move and actually trim items. It's, I mean, the way you speak about them emotionally, I think that's a feeling that founders for sure. And a lot of us get about these items that we've, we've worked on for so long, but, um, uh, so important. Yeah. I think in addition to the, like, Oh, you know, killing your darlings. I love this product. Yeah. Those are just very expensive to have put so much money into a product to and then to even just the disco costs are tremendous um yeah. and so i think one of the things that we have really kind of built up this mantra internally is like the sunk cost fallacy like yes we poured a lot of money in yes we did it um but no that doesn't mean we should continue to do it it's a sunk cost we'll never get it back and for for other founders out there that are dealing with the same issue because we see it all the time you mentioned like COGS being one of the main reasons why you made the decision to get a bit or playing in the wrong category. How did that, like, what are all the data points that you put together to make that hard decision to say, you know what, it's not working. We got to get rid of the shots or whatever that is. What are you looking at? And maybe advice you can give to current founders who are deciding <laughs> yes or no on a private line. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, you know, we, we need our like gross margin to be in the forties or above. Um, and we took a really hard look at all of our products. And, you know, when you netted out all the trade spend and I think for new products, for us, at least we're looking at like 20 to 25% trade. Yeah. Um, and when you subtract that out, if you only have like, you know, a 40% unit product margin, it's just not worth it. Um, you can't do it. Um, and so I think we, we had a lot of really hard conversations where we were like, okay, what, you know, if, if the, if the cogs sock right now, can we scale it? Can we get them to a place where they will be great? Um, and you know, it, we talked to so many co-packers, we did a bunch of research and then we talked to some of our partners at Kellogg cause Kellogg is our largest investor. And it was fascinating to hear from their innovation team, like one of their heads of innovation that he tells his team 
that they can't scale their way to profitability. Yeah. That like even Kellogg, That's the great. behemoth, can't make the cogs better through economies of scale. You can't make it like, up okay, scale. I give up. You know, yeah. <laughs> Kellogg can't do it. We certainly can't. That's so funny. I mean, we had a, I think we did an episode last year on this pod, a Mythbusters episode where it was, you can't make it up the volume. And it was exactly mm-hmm. that. Like, you're just not going to be able to grow your way out of your margin issues. So it's either going to work at the existing market or existing pricing structure now, or it's not. So yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy here. Yeah. And I think especially in today's macroeconomic oh, yeah. environment, like you definitely can't rely on costs going down. You can pretty much just rely on them going up. Going up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so you mentioned you have um, Kellogg's as one of your lead investors. Um, I, do you guys have a lot of, a lot of other investors? Are you a lot of investor activity? Where are you guys out on we that journey? We do. We do. You know, the, the thing about starting a company out of the Peace Corps is that I had like $2,000 in my bank account, period. <laughs> um, so I didn't have a lot of personal cash to invest. And, you know, especially being 23, I didn't have like particularly wealthy friends or, or family to, to pour money in. Um, so mm-hmm. I started fundraising pretty quickly, right away. Um, pretty much, you know, as soon as, as soon as we were launching and took a couple of different forms. So we've raised, tell people I've raised like literally every type of capital. We've done three crowdfunding campaigns. One of them was, oh. you know, two donation based. One of them was crowdfunding equity. We've done um, kind of every type of loan structure you can imagine, working line of credit, um, like a Kiva sort of microfinance loan, a, you know, term debt loan for a bank. <laughs> um, and then I raised close to 11 million in venture and angel investment. So um, the first round of financing was all angels, which is like pulling teeth. <laughs> it's really, really hard to fundraise when you're small. Um, and then, you know, I actually think it's gotten progressively easier from there. So we've, we did an angel round, a series A and a series B. Um, and we're thankfully at the point where we are not reliant on further equity at the moment and actually have some really great debt partners that we can work and scale with. That's uh, that's wonderful to hear you're in a somewhat stable position like that. That's uh, not a lot of companies get to that point. We're very, very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the margins play though, right? I mean, focus but, that you've had on margins allowed you to probably do that, right? Or played a role? A hundred percent. And that, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of the big considerations. It's just with the product lines we had, we were never going to get to a point where we were like, you know, even close to clash, cash flow break even. Um, mm-hmm. And I have been very clear from day one that I, I know we need capital to scale yeah. this business. I think every CBG company does, but I never want to be entirely dependent on outside capital and particularly not venture capital. I think um, I've just seen so many people lose their company. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's hard enough when you have the regular set of stakeholders, um, but then you layer in your social capital and social consciousness to this as well. That adds an additional layer of difficulty. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how you balance those two groups of stakeholders? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, So we are a B Corp, which a lot of people, you know, relatively familiar with. We're also a benefit corporation, which is a a legal structure. Um, So Mm -hmm. it means that, you know, hypothetically someday if Kellogg and Glanvia and Pepsi all wanted to buy us and, you know, Glanvia was like, I'll pay you 300 million. And Kellogg was like, I'll pay you 250 million, but I'll keep your really impactful supply chain. 
we could go with Kellogg and not be sued by our investors. Um, and so it does it does build in that kind of social purpose into our corporate structure. Um, and that was something where we did have a few investors. Um, so I did it right before our Series A, kind of purposely knowing that it was going to be a bit of a litmus test. And there were a few Series A investors who said that was not what they were interested in. They didn't want to invest. Um, but we also had others who were pro. Um, and I think the the really cool thing about, you know, Cooley Cooley's debt partnerships in particular is that we're now large enough that we've been able to work with a lot of family foundations who are offering like way below market interest rates um, because of our mission. And so it has, I think it's been both an asset and a challenge. Would you say that like that profitability becomes and having like a stable business becomes more important when you have that additional set of stakeholders instead of like just being beholden to a bank? A hundred percent. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, the thing that like keeps me up at night is not like, oh no, I'm going to like hurt this bank that has a ton of money, but like, right. oh no, there's a ton of farmers. Farmers, farmers. You know, we, we even saw it um, during COVID when we weren't able to source product. It really hurt a lot of our farmer partners. And unfortunately there was not much we could do about it at the time, but uh, on one hand, it, it sort of showed just how important our business had become to so many stakeholders. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I'm sure the investors, like you said, that some investors that were happy to jump in with you guys being a benefit corp, they they must also be seeing that, right? Better business, better business all around. Yeah, we have some real kind of blue chip CPG investors. Like we have Kellogg, we have S2G, or we have Investica, Rakana, a lot of CPG venture firms that aren't specifically impact focused. Um, but I think they see the benefit uh, not just as like a good for the world, but also as this is what a lot of Gen Z and millennials care about. Like this is the way the market is moving. People want to know where their food comes from. They want to know that the company is ethical. They want to know that they're doing good things for the environment and, and people along the way. Yeah, and it's great too. You have those people that see it, they're on board with it. And then when they manage expectations, when you're doing board meetings, everyone gets that which allows you to make the right decisions. And speaking of decisions, as you talked about cost increasing, have you been able to take price? Have you been, has there been any challenges with pricing in the marketplace? I know a lot of brands we're working on have taken multiple price increases to cover the costs, to keep the margin where we need it to be. What does that world look like for you over the last year or so? What type of pressure? Yeah, I'm sort of sighing because I wish, I wish we could take price increases. We are pretty premium on shelf. Like we're already, you know, generally we're like $19.99 or $24.99 or $29.99. And we just find when you cross that threshold, like when you go from 19 bucks to 21 bucks, you lose customers and especially kind of as we go into a recession. So we did, we did sort of a wait and see approach at the beginning. Like we knew we were taking, we we're losing margin and wanted to see other folks in our category do it first. And we did see some sales decrease in a way that I think, you know, a lot of the media attention around it has been on the, on the big guys, on the Kellogg's, on the General Mills, on the whoever who have taken price increases and been totally fine. I don't think that is the case for all small brands. Yeah. And it's interesting too, right? We worked with some brands that have taken the price increase and have not seen the decline. 
But what we're measuring is not really a change in consumer sensitivity to price. It's more a result of lower PA, so not having the product to meet the demand. And so mm-hmm. like a lot of these companies are at 50, 60% fill rates. And so you take your price up 10% and in a normal times you would lose, call it on average 10%. Don't have the supply to even meet that demand, so they're getting almost I want to say in quotes a free price increase. So I think they're getting some of the advantages there that's not being talked about. It sounds like you were having pretty good fill rates, so yeah, you're probably right. If you had taken price, I'm I'm guessing you would have seen some sort of decline, especially crossing over a a big threshold like twenty dollars. We it'll be interesting to see where even you know the next six months. Who knows? Yeah. So what's next for Cooley Cooley as you look towards the 2023 just around the corner here? Yes, we just launched six new SKUs. So we discoed six SKUs and launched two six new SKUs. So it's a pretty big portfolio refresh in a lot of ways. Um, and we're really excited. Our new superfood gummies are now in about 1,200 doors. So they just got a ton of new distribution. They're everywhere from Whole Foods, Sprouts, Vitamin Chop, many others. And then similarly, we're launching some new superfood blends. And we actually have two launch partners. We have an anchor in both UNFI and KE, which has never happened to us before, oh, um, lined up to launch them next year. So next for Coolie Coolie is a lot of a lot of brand blocks in that superfood supplement aisle. Oh, that's so great. Exciting. I tried the gummies at a Naturally Bay Area event recently, uh, and they were they were delicious. So glad you liked them. Yeah. Give us a pitch on the super gummies. Like what's what's so special about them? What's in them? What are the use cases for them? Uh, maybe a little yeah. education for the consumers who are going to go and buy them in their local stores. Cool thing about our gummies. I think there's like a lot of gummies on the market. I also think yeah. there's a lot of consumers who are concerned that is this really sugar disguised as a supplement? And oh, these are like kind of sticky. They're like sticking to my teeth. Cool thing about our gummies. So we have three to four times the amount of active ingredients of any gummy on the market. So you're getting 400 to 500 milligrams of active superfood ingredient. Super clean label. We didn't add anything to it. It's just real food and these real super powerful plants. And then we actually put them in a pouch, which I think is uh, much more sustainable than a plastic bottle. It's a post-consumer recycled pouch. And then it's also much more stackable. So the idea is that, you know, take two gummies one to two times a day and you're getting your superfoods for the day in a way that, you know, for a lot of folks who maybe don't have time to like moringa and turmeric and chaga mushroom, like taste really good on their morning smoothie or, you know, all of that or don't want to take pills. That's great. It's good to know. I'll have to go try them. Um, And we're going to wrap it up now with one final question. And I want to focus on your core. So your powder. That's the part that really drives the business. Uh, where can consumers find that? I know obviously Whole Foods, but if they're talking conventional, mass, online, where are all the channels? Where can they go get it? So our number one here is in 11,000 stores nationwide. So we are Amazing. everywhere from Whole Foods to even places like CVS, Walmart, Sprout, Vitamin Shot, and of course, you know, Amazon and our own website. Awesome. Well, everyone out there, go try some of the Moringa powder from Cooley Cooley. It's CooleyCooleyFoods.com. Put it in your morning smoothie. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us for two episodes. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation and best of luck in 2023. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks.